I felt at the end of last week, um, mainly because I took a lot of time reviewing for the sake of the overwhelming visitors that we had. I didn't want to leave them out. That uh, I just left the end of chapter 6 of Daniel hanging a little. I covered some of the material, but I wanted to go back quickly and reemphasize a few things uh, beginning in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 6, and then we'll, we'll take a look at uh, where we are in Daniel chapter 7, and I'll go through that in a second up there. But in, in Daniel 16, or Daniel 6, you know, we're talking about Daniel in the lion's den. And uh, it's not just a story for young kids, it's a story for old kids like us as well. It's a story for all ages, and it's a story that inspires us to do what's right in the face of danger. Um, we mentioned that the king told Daniel in verse 16 that the only thing that he could do, despite everything that he had done to search the records, to search any kind of legal loophole that he could, could try to grab hold of to not force Daniel to be destroyed by the lions was simply to no avail. And the only thing he had to do that he could do and still save face as a king was to do exactly as the decree said. You've got to go in the lion's den. And, uh, but when he did, we mentioned the fact that he said the very last thing that he told him, your God whom you serve continually will deliver you. And we talked about Daniel being observed by this pagan king. This pagan king watched, obviously got to know Daniel fairly quickly since they had uh, just taken over. <laughs> and he distinguished himself very, very well. His actions did not portray his beliefs. His beliefs were in concert with the things that he did each and every day, and that impressed this particular king. So he knew of his devotion to God. And we ask, what would others see in us regarding our devotion to God? Do they see me saying one thing and doing another? Um, do they see me acting in any way inconsistently with what they may perceive to be a Christian or maybe what I've told them about how a Christian should act? And that's just important that we always observe our lives in the eyes of people so that they see us as the type of pattern we need to be, a beaming light shining bright before them, and no matter what the situation is, uh, whether we are reacting to something, whether they're just observing us doing something, but we are to be a living testimony for Jesus Christ with no hypocrisy in our lives. We talked about we must walk the walk. Our talk and our walk must be aligned properly so that people say we are consistent. We are to be holy people, holy in what we say, what we do, what we watch, what we wear, what we listen to, what we participate in. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, of the high standard that has been set before us. It's not a low standard. It's a high standard. 
as he who called you is holy. That's a high standard, isn't it? <laughs> who called us? God. Christ did. How do you get any holier than that? And that's the standard that we live by. It's not me compared to Shane. It's not you compared to me. It's not me compared to the preachers or the elders or the most spiritual person you've ever known in your life. It's us compared to God. We are to be holy as he is holy. You ought to be holy in some of your conduct, most of your conduct, all of your conduct. All to me means 24-7. It means my conduct between me and you. It means my conduct between me and Tina. It means my conduct between me and my daughter and son-in-law who see me in situations that you don't see me all the time. You see me here. Most of you see me right here in a church. And I'm on my best behavior here. <laughs> I promise you. But am I on my best behavior when I'm not here? Am I holy in all of my conduct? And to ask that question begs us to delve deep in reflection on where I am personally. Am I holy in all my conduct? How do I find out? And I will tell you, it takes great, great courage to look into the mirror of the Bible and and see myself as God sees me, and ask, what is God seeing in me? And am I proud of that? Am I in harmony with what God says? Or do I see a glaring contradiction? There are sometimes I comb my hair, and I'm ready to walk out, and Tina says, whoa, <laughs> come back here, boy. You didn't catch the back of your head. <laughs> it, it's not presentable. You're going to embarrass me. And so she doesn't say that, honestly. <laughs> she, uh, but she helps me see how I really am because sometimes I can't see. And that's why she's there. And that's what I do for her. And that's what we have to do for each other. But to do that, we have to be honest with each other. We have to be open with each other. We have to be kind, considerate, gracious in our words toward each other and understand that together we are better if we tell each other the truth and we don't hide truths from each other. And we need to change when we aren't holy so that our speech and our actions in front of everybody else is consistent all the time, not just some of the time, but all the time with the people that we come in contact with. I didn't get to say that last week, so now you get to hear that. <laughs> but then we move on into verse 17. A stone was brought, was laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. So Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. There was no special favor that was given to, the, to Daniel. The king himself took a signet ring, as was talked about this past Sunday. I forget who mentioned that. But the signet ring was stamped. The signet ring of the Lord's was stamped. Nobody could charge them of acting in any kind of prefer preferential favor 
toward Daniel. Um, but that did not settle the king's mind at all. He did not go, sorry, that's all that was it. Verse 18 tells us the rest of the story. The king went to his palace. He spent the night fasting. No musicians were brought before him. That's the modern, no. That was the pre-version of Apple music, you know. Had his beck and call, the musicians could come to him. That wasn't going to help him. Also, his sleep went from him. He was in absolute distress. I mean, wouldn't you be in distress if you knew that you did everything you could to save this individual, but despite your best efforts, there's nothing you can do anymore. And now he has to be thinking, how long did he survive when they threw him in the den? Is he still alive? What's happened to him? I mean, they know what happens when a lion normally attacks somebody, but when a den of lions attacks one person? I mean, you can just imagine the terror, the agony that's going through his mind. How long did he live? Is he okay? Um, you know, he can't see everything, but it was a long, long night for him. But fortunately, when we mentioned this, the story doesn't end there. Because the very next morning, he rose early in verse 19, and he ran to the den of the lions, eager to find out what was happening. And I like what the King James Version says. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God. That'd be a great epithet. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you? And of course, Daniel said, yes. O king, live forever. We talked about, I think I mentioned the fact he didn't say, oh, rascal. <laughs> you know, you, you should not have done what you did, and now God is going to repay you. He didn't say that. He was respectful back to the king, knew the king had to do what he had to do, and no doubt, being his friend, and being who he was, he uh, absolutely was thrilled beyond imagination to be able to hear the voice that he did. In verse 20, remember the king noted that Daniel served a living God. And what does a living God do? A living God acts. He acts by his own will and his own way, doing the things that God deems to be important and to handle at the time. We don't always see that. Sometimes he dips into the affairs of men, and we see that because it's recorded to us. But we know that he, as a living God, he will always do that. We just don't have the recorded version of what God is always doing on a daily basis. But we have to have faith that God is doing that in his time and the way he wants. And just like he did here, he shut the angels, the angels shut the mouths of the lion so they could not bite or devour Daniel. And I notice what verse 23 says. This is one thing we didn't cover. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he believed in his God. Think about that. Because he believed in his God. In no doubt, you recall, somebody mentioned it before uh, recently in the sermon, 
that in Hebrews 11:33 there is a reference to faith that subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. It took great faith. Daniel was not just confined to go, all right, it is what it is, be what it be, and he's just going to be thrown to the den. You see an active faith on his part, knowing that God could indeed save him. Would he know what was happening? No. But all along, he knew that God could do what he could do because there was nothing that... Remember, we said, how, how does he know that? Because look what he studied. Look what he grew up learning. Look at all the evidences that had been presented to him as he learned from the Old Testament that well, the, the portions that he had about how God dealt with his people, how God saved his people, that it required faith on their part. Sometimes people lost their lives. But even like his three friends said in the story earlier, with the, with the fiery furnace. Even if God chose not to save us, I believe he can save us. And that's what Daniel had. He had the same conviction. And um, I also wanted to know, remember if you flip forward a few verses, we see what happened to the people who perpetrated this particular crime upon Daniel and hatched this great plan to have him moved out of the way for simply... Uh, personal reasons that they hated him. He was not. Uh, he was not a southerner. That is a southerner, southern Babylonian, Babylonian, or whatever it is. <laughs> he was a foreigner. He was a Jew. He's a captive. He doesn't deserve this particular honor that he's in. Yeah, he's doing pretty good for themselves. Obviously, a lot better than me because you think more of him than me. But I don't care. He is not a native, and we need to get rid of him. And so they were the ones that devised the plan. And now we notice that the plan was thrown back on them because the king said, you're going to face the same destruction that you had in mind for Daniel. You are going to be thrown into the den. And then we noticed that not only was Daniel thrown, not Daniel, the, the perpetrators were thrown into the den, so were the family members. And I, I had read one thing about one historian noted that the laws among the Persians were formidable among which those were enacted against the ungrateful and deserters. I don't remember if I said this last night, last week. And abominable crimes when they surpass others in cruelty by which on account of the guilt of one, all the kindred perish. So it would not have been unusual for entire families to be punished because of the guilt of one. What if we had that law on the books today? Ooh, that would hurt. <laughs> I wonder what crime would go to if we held each other accountable and we talked to each other the way we need to talk to sometimes and straighten each other out. <laughs> but justice was brought upon these evil men. And then we did not mention this. Another public proclamation was made this one was in place of the foolish decree that had originally been pronounced that gave this ridiculous order in the first place. And in this particular decree, Darius said in the, in the kingdom of Darius, those who show reverence for the God of Daniel, you should show reverence for the God of Daniel, and here's why. And he gave six reasons. 
Number one, he's a living God. And that took a lot for a pagan God to say. Because they knew everybody, they knew all the gods around them were made with their own hands. Not the God of heaven. God is a living God. And he's active. Number two, he's eternally steadfast. He never ceases to exist. Number three, his reign will never be destroyed unlike the kingdoms of men. Number four, he delivers and rescues. Number five, he works signs and wonders. And number six, and oh, by the way, he delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. We cannot overlook that. And because of that, that was the decree. And it set a stage where the Jewish religion enjoyed some um, relative calmness in that particular kingdom from that point forward. And then we did cover the last lesson about how Daniel continued through the rest. I don't think I mentioned this, though. He continued successfully in the reign of Darius and even into the kingship of Cyrus. So he is a man well into his 80s doing the best that he can to serve God, and at the same time he is serving now in the second um, Roman or Second World Empire. Remember, the Babylonians captured him, and now he's in the Medo-Persian Empire, and it didn't matter to him. I serve God first, but I will serve you as faithfully as I can, as long as you do not tell me to do something that's contrary to the will of God. And he did that superbly. And we mentioned that temptation doesn't just come to the young. It comes to the old as well, being in the 80s. And we always need to be on guard. So that's what I wanted to cover that I really didn't get to cover last week. And I know it probably means we're going to skip forward a little bit but um, and move, move some things a little back to next week, and that's okay. I had a, I had a week in there of, uh, of some downtime in a way I wanted to cover potentially um, the silent period of the Bible between the 400 years, or at least the, yeah, that's what we call the silent period, between 400 and uh, the time Christ came. But we still may do that. But now we're in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. The stage is set for uh, a different, especially for those who've never read Daniel before. The first six books, first six chapters of Daniel are pretty straightforward. And they're pretty easy to read, uh, pretty easy to understand. It's just almost a narrative of the history of captivity. But the last half of the book is written entirely in a new style, in what they call apocalyptic literature. There's a lot of apocalyptic type of literature in this. There are four visions that will be told in chapters 7 through 12. One of the visions is in chapter 7. One of the visions is in chapter 8. There is a vision and a prayer in chapter 9. And then finally, there is a very long vision in chapters 10 through 12. Chronologically, the first two visions that took place that we're going to study in chapters 7 and 8 actually come before chapters 5 and 6. Okay? And part of that probably has to go with how the book of Daniel was written. Remember we talked about um, Daniel is kind of like a sandwich. 
It's got the two outer buns are Hebrew, and then the in-between meat, over here, vegetarian, tomatoes, whatever, you know. My mom used tomato sandwiches all the time. So whether it's tomatoes or onions or um, whatever, you know, you name it, it's Aramaic. It's chapters 2, verse 4, second part of verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28, which is where we are tonight. And it really is a, and we're going to talk about that more. I'm, I'm going to almost jump ahead, but I'm not going to. Um, the first vision recurs in chapter 7 occurs in the first year of King Belshazzar. The second vision in chapter 8 came in the third year of Belshazzar. And don't forget where in the world, who is Belshazzar? Remember, he was the co-regent of his dad, Nabonidus, who was the last major ruler of the um, Babylonian Empire. And remember, he, after being in, in the reign of three years, he left for 10 because he wanted to go archaeology, building, digging, whatever you do. You know, he went 500 miles away, and he left his son, Belshazzar, who was the crown prince, basically in charge of everything. So... Um, that's where these years are coming through. And so there's, there's a co-regent going on between Belshazzar and his father. Ninth chapter is in the first year of Darius the Mede. Remember, Darius the Mede is the one who came and took over after Belshazzar was killed in chapter 6. I mean, chapter 5, and with the handwriting on the wall. And then the last vision will occur um, two years later in the third year of Cyrus, who was the ruler over the entire Persian Empire. So... These visions are going to be fascinating to us as we read them. And we're actually going to read chapter 7 tonight. Because they tell of things that are going to come in the future, not of things that have occurred in the past. We have the perspective of being able to look at fulfilled prophecy, the establishment of the kingdom of God, which we are now in, and we can look back and go, oh, that's what it was pretty much talking about. But Daniel is looking forward. 500 years of events are going to take place over a 500-year period, which includes, as we've already talked about in chapter 2, the raising up of these four kingdoms, and eventually the climax of the matter, the most important point of the matter, the thing that we have to be focused on the most is the establishment of the kingdom of God during the fourth empire, a kingdom that would never, ever go away. Unlike the other four kingdoms, unlike every other kingdom that would ever exist and may go away, this kingdom is eternal in its nature, and it would glorify God. Um, it is interesting, and this is, a, this is one of those things when you're reading the details of the book of Daniel with some of the commentaries, um, the, the details of Daniel are so precise that the critics have, have attempted to find ways to say there is no way Daniel could have written this 500 years before the time of Christ. There's just no way. He had to have known what happened for him to record the events that were recorded for it to match so precisely with the way the world turned out 
over the next 500 years. So remember we said earlier Daniel was written probably around 530 B.C. But if you take the view that there's no way he could have written it before these things happened, then you're looking at a later date of somewhere in the late 200 B.C.s to early 100 B.C.s. And there's, it's just fascinating to read all the different things that people think about all that. But none of that adds up when we can look back in history. And if you believe that the kingdom of God was set up as God said it would. And do not forget that. And we're going to talk about this eventually. <laughs> Maybe not tonight. But if the kingdom of God had never been set up, or if it was set up and then put on pause, which is what the premillennialists, many of them think, that the second kingdom or the kingdom of God is really going to be established when Christ comes at his second return, then this 2,000-year age of the church is just simply a pause. It's what they call the great parenthesis. Now, we're going to talk about that one too. <laughs> but if, if the stake goes in the ground that the kingdom of God was indeed established, as everybody in this room would agree with me, when it was established and that Christ is now reigning as the king of his kingdom, and that the apostles went everywhere preaching the kingdom of God and how to be added to the kingdom of God and how to be translated out of darkness into the power of the kingdom of God, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, then it stands to reason that you can't have both things. If the kingdom is in existence, then it draws a stake and you can look back and you can see how things start to unfold. But if you think the kingdom is going to be happening in the future, guess what people are still looking for? This fourth world empire that should arise. That Daniel's going to talk about. Remember, we've already talked about in the first, in chapter two, where there was the metals, the four metals. Now he's going to basically say the same thing here, but in a little bit different way. So here's what I want to make sure you you understand as we look at this, we're going to look at the visions, but we're not going to focus so closely on the details of the visions that we lose the lesson of the visions. Because on some of these details, you could go as this person, well, I think it's this. Okay. Well, I think it's this. <laughs> and we don't, if we do that, we're going to end up maybe losing the most important lesson. And what is the most important lesson? God is in control and that God will establish his kingdom in spite of every opposition that man may come up with. Nothing will stop God from fulfilling his purpose. So, as we look at these lessons that we're teaching, we are not going to stop and take so much time to debate what the little horn was in chapter 7. Um, if you want to do that between you and somebody else outside of class, be my guest. <laughs> but we're not going to spend tons of time on it. We're going to talk about some bigger things. 
So I just want you to, especially if you've never read this, I want you to hear the vision as it is being read. Think about what Daniel is seeing and let those details sink into your mind. Visualize what he saw and then listen as God explains the meanings. And the meanings, when they're explained, just like we're going to see in chapter 7, sometimes the meaning is explained like this in two verses. And Daniel's like, uh, tell me more. <laughs> That's a little too short of an interpretation for me. Can you tell me a little bit more about this fourth beast? In particular, this horn that I'm seeing. I don't know what that is. And so a little bit more information is told to him, as we'll see here in chapter 7. But it's not so much that we can just go, oh, yeah, that means David left his home at 630, got here at 640, and he put a PowerPoint in at 650, and boom, he's there teaching at 7. It's not going to be like that. Okay? But it is going to be fascinating. It's going to be very, very fascinating. So... Um, I want to read Daniel chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to go along with me in this. Or if you want to, you can just listen as I read. I should get David to do this because David does a great job reading. <laughs> he has a David voice, as Bill talks about. And he can put that pause in there. But I'm going to do my best. <laughs> So I want you to listen to what Daniel is saying that happened in chapter 7. And uh, it's 28 verses. So uh, if you haven't, if for some reason you do get to read it tonight before you came, you're in luck. I haven't read anything so far of the first six chapters. But when it gets down to this one, I thought it was important that we read this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel and I'm reading from the New King James Version. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Not every fact. Not everything that he saw, but the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from each other. The first was like a lion. And it's unlike any lion you've ever seen. <laughs> and it was a lion that had eagle's wings. And I watched it till its wings were plucked off. And it was then lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And then suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it would raise up on one side. And it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, 
and dominion was given to it. Now, if I just did a pause right there, how many animals have you ever seen like that walking around your neighborhood? You don't see these things, and neither has he. And if you're seeing these things, what's going on through his mind? Remember, he, remember these things were etched in his mind to the point he wrote them down. What's all this mean? Verse 7, And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, but no, by the way, no comparison to any animal. Why? This beast was dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. What it could not devour, it trampled to death, which is really what that says. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And one of the differentiations, it had ten horns. And I was, he said, I was considering the horns. The horns caught his attention. <laughs> so I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among the ten, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, by this little horn as it grew in front of him. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And I watched until something took place. Something else now catches his mind. It's no longer the beast. He watches and then he sees. Thrones were being put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated in one of the throne chairs. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Can you imagine the sight that he's seeing? A thousand thousands. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. <clears throat> Judgment in court is now assumed. And I watched them because of the sound of this pompous words which the horn was speaking, and I watched till the beast was slain, its body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. Obviously because of the edict of this court. And as for the rest of the beasts, well, they had their dominion taken away, and yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near him before him. 
And don't forget that. Where is the Ancient of Days? And who's brought to him? And then to him, the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Pause. You ever heard of that before in the first six chapters of Daniel? At least five or six times. If, when, of the decrees of the Babylonian kingdoms. Remember when they said, this is the decree in all my peoples, nations, and languages who I'm over? You need to hear this decree. Sometimes when it was Nebuchadnezzar or it was uh, Darius who said, I now know who the God of the Israelites is, so all you peoples, nations, languages, you listen and you obey. This same words were now used for this kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and this kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, when I saw this, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, and I asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. And here's the short interpretation, verses 17 and 18. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Amen. And that should be the end of the story. But then Daniel says, mm -mm. I need to know a little more. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, not the first, second, and third, but the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, and he repeats what he said earlier, with its teeth of iron, its nails of bronze, which is now added, that wasn't in there before, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with his feet, and those ten horns <laughs> that were on its head. And the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. What's all this mean? I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the ancient of days came. A judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And so he gets another answer. Thus he said, the fourth beast, if you really want to know, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it into pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. He shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall contend or intend to change times and laws. And then the saints shall be given into his hands for a time and times and half a time. But the court, verse 26, shall be seated. And the results of the court being seated and the judgment given is that they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom 
and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. All dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the count. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I want to know more, and he was told more, but he still wants to know more. <laughs> He's like those prophets who search diligently and diligently. What's all this mean? But God only tells him so much. And he's going to have to be satisfied with that. We have, there's just a few minutes left. We have, and so we'll delve into chapter 7 in detail next week. Because it's, this chapter represents the conclusion of the first half of the book of Daniel. Um, and mainly we see that because it is the, it concludes this Aramaic section of the book. And it's as if chapters 2 through 7 were presented as this unit of Aramaic in an otherwise Hebrew book. And so it normally, it, it would just seem to then suggest and demand that there is a separate unit meaning something for these particular sections. The Aramaic section seems to contain this general message which is designed for the world at large in a language that was common to the world in general at that time. Whereas the remainder of the book, the buns, seems to be directed to the people of the children of Israel, the people of God, and it's written in their native language. What's going to happen to them over these next 500 years? Who's going to rise? Who's going to come to power? What's going to happen to the children of God? Daniel sees a little bit of that. He sees that the saints are going to be persecuted, and that troubles him. He knows there's going to be some kind of persecution. He doesn't know about all these nations. He's not told exactly who they were. Only time would tell. But that's where we're setting the stage for as we dig and in, delve into the details of chapter 7 next week. And I, I want to say this too. As you look at this, and we'll close with this, this Aramaic section, it's, it's so interesting. Remember, I know about that much about Aramaic. And that's because I've only read this and studied about it. There's many, some in here probably know a lot about Aramaic. But chapters, it's, it's almost like this, this uh, half circle. Two and seven coincide with each other. Three and six coincide with each other. Four and five coincide with each other. Two and seven talk about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the head of gold, and all those things that he saw. It talks about the four beasts versus... The four beasts mentioned here, or the four metals versus the four beasts mentioned in chapter 7. Chapter 3 talks about Nebuchadnezzar and the fiery furnace and how God rescues him along with what he did in chapter 6 when he rescued Daniel from the lion's den. So 3 and 6 are about God rescuing. 4 and 5 deal how God humbles nature or kings. He humbled Nebuchadnezzar. You recall that he made him like a beast and ate grass like a beast, and lived in the wild. When then in chapter 5, God humbled and then destroyed Belshazzar. 
So there's this kind of semicircle where it connects all the two. We'll talk about that a little bit more. I guess that'll just kind of whet your appetite for what we'll study next week. All right.